Hello, I'm Stephanie Law. Welcome to my podcast, Surface Time, Confections of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver, and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the surface time today, I spoke with Catherine Liu, a challenges photographer, both on land and underwater, and a creative in life. Her passion for photography fuels her, whether it is for underwater, wildlife, or otherwise. Let's listen to her recounting the incredible experience of diving in Anilao, Philippines, when Tar Volcano erupted, and the spectacular blackwater dives when she captured the award-winning photos. Oh my God, you're scripting us. We recording? This is very disturbing. Right, on the camera. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I would like to start with the classic question I've always asked everybody. <laughs> Where was your last memorable dive? Last memorable dive. That's a good question. They're all memorable. I would say probably the last one that was most memorable right before COVID in any little Philippines. And why was that memorable? Because the tall volcano had erupted. There was a lot of ash. But when we were diving, it was interesting because the visibility was not so good during the night dive because of the ash particles. And actually, the critters were all gone for whatever reason. It just seemed like fewer critters than normal. And not sure if that was because of the ash or if there was an earthquake. But uh, what was interesting, too, was while you don't feel the earthquakes on land, you could hear them underwater. Oh, yeah. That was my first time diving. <laughs> an earthquake. <laughs> oh, wow. You can hear them. Yes, you can hear the explosions. They sound like dynamite or something. It's really loud. <laughs> so did you know you were listening to a quake happening or did you think it was dynamite? I wasn't sure what it was. Honestly, it was loud. And then when I surfaced for the surface interval, I was asking my dive master, what's that sound? Is that an earthquake? And he says, yes, that's the earthquake. Oh, wow. That's incredible. I've always wondered what it's like when you're underwater, that if a tsunami happened, whatever it <laughs> Because then you probably didn't know what's going on until you surfaced. But now I know that you can hear a thing. Yeah, yeah. you can't see. The diving's the same. You can't feel anything different. But then you just hear the sound. It's, what is the sound? And it's dark and it's eerie. And all of a sudden you hear this like, loud noises. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> so obviously you didn't go because of the earthquake, but what was the original purpose of your dive? Oh, my original purpose was to do black water diving. So for the benefit of the listeners, especially this one who's not come across Blackwater Dive, could you share a bit more about what is Blackwater Dive and how is that different from when you're doing underwater photography? I would say I've been diving for a long time, 20 plus years. I've gone into photography probably six years ago. but And so I've shot a lot of the typical macro and wide angle shots and then... I started to see these really alien looking creatures show up in my newsfeed by certain photographers. And then I started to learn that this was called backwater diving because they were like a lot of larval fish, jellyfish, octopus squids, things I've just never seen before. The larval fish are most interesting because they evolve so quickly and that they could be very intricate and beautiful. But what it is, it's a type of night dive where it's not a night dive of a reef. The bottom would be 200 meters below or further. It's just basically open ocean and it's night. So that's why it's called black water. 
So see, they drop a line on a buoy, and on the line there will be lights, say 10 meters, 15 meters, 20 meters, maybe 30 meters, like every five meters or so. And the lights are there just to orientate you. So you just swim around so that you could see the light. You know, you're close proximity to the buoy and then the boat will, you'll drift with the buoy. So if there's current, you'll just drift and the boat will follow from far, farther away. So the whole time you're just suspended in open water calm. And then whatever comes out in the dark, you use the torchlights, you're just searching around. You never know what comes out of the darkness. And that's the exciting part. Y'all never know what you and it just comes out of nowhere. That sounds like lots of stuff going on. Okay, without the black water, the normal day dies. Even when you hit no visibility, it's also quite stressful. For some people. Yeah. And uh, and and then so going down to black water, you actually went down with your big camera. With a lot of light and lots of other extra extension. And it's cold also. (laughs) (laughs) Wet suit. And you're suspended. So that's the other thing is that you have to have very good buoyancy because there's nothing to hold on to. You're just floating in the water column. If you have good buoyancy, you can maintain your, your depth. So typically, we would just start searching around 15 meters and then move up and down as we see something. But then we start to see something, sometimes you start to chase it down. And before you know it, it's, you're moving up and down the water column very quickly. Uh-huh. You really have to watch your depth. You can easily go down yeah. to 30 meters very quickly. Not knowing. And it's like Christmas. It's, you don't know what surprises will be in store for you. Hey, what I really love about underwater photos taken in the black water dives is the color, the odd looking creature that you find. It's like finding aliens underwater mm-hmm. on Earth. So what's like for you? What's the key attraction for you? I think it's because it's something I haven't seen before in a day dive. Most people don't see this because it only happens at night. The Great Migration. The people don't realize that every single night there's this great migration. So the things in the deeper levels will actually move up to the warmer levels in the ocean, near the ocean surface for various reasons, for food, for mating, what have you. And then as the night progresses, everything goes back down again, down to the depths before the sun rises. Wow. Yeah. So say the a little... Every single night, this show. Yeah, is a show. And you have no idea who's going to show up at the show. <laughs> and it's like I said, some of these creatures are from the deep and you will normally see them during the day. What do you do with your photos? Because obviously you capture them and you post on Instagram. The most recent one that you show is the octopus. Yes. So I entered that in the competition and I won second place in the Ocean Graphic Underwater Photographer of the Year. I'm very proud of that octopus. It was just, I, it was one of the creatures I wanted to see really badly. The first time I went to any love, I didn't see it. I did 10 dives. saw some other really cool things, but not the blanket octopus. And when I got that, when I saw it appear, I was like, wow, that thing is big. <laughs> it's big. And I was mesmerized by it. I was thinking, I wish I had my wide angle lens. Uh-huh. And then I, I just followed it. Again, like I said, the volcano was erupting. I was actually sick diving and then it just opened up and I was like, whoa, I was just so much sick. I was in awe. <laughs> but what do I do with my photos? Yeah, part of it is that I hadn't really thought about what I'm doing with it. Some of them I do print out for myself, some of myself, some of it's just, I just do it for fun. So it's a hobby. Yeah. I also noticed that there's a consistent style that how you present it on your website as your portfolio is either quite minimalist. It's very rich, but it's minimalist in the sense that it draws your attention straight to the subject itself. Yeah. I do a lot of portrait with clean backgrounds. 
So those are very standard macro shots. I'm not a, what do you call it, a photo journalist where I just take it as I see it with no artistic kind of interpretation to it. Of course, sometimes I just do what they call a record shot just to remember that moment, right? Then I might have compositions in mind on how I want to play with the light or how I want that creature to appear in the photo. Try to do something more interesting is what I try to do. So what's your creative process that before you go down to the side sites? Sometimes I might see something, either it could be in land photography, it could be someone else's images I see, and then come up with an idea. And then I'll have this idea in my mind and I'll think about, okay, how will I execute it? And what subject will I do it on? And then I look for that subject. It could be any subject. It could be like a seahorse. It could be a nudibranch. It doesn't have to be a exotic, rare creature. And then I will try to execute it and try to do it in a way that's different than what's been done before by other people. But in terms of a creature, do you actually just know where they would be before you go down or you visit the sign, you found that you go back again, or you just go down and hope that what you have in mind will show up, you can play around with your ideas? Yeah, normally I don't know if it's going to be there. Generally what happens is if I'm trying to execute a creative idea, it, I'll just see what's available. If, if the opportunity presents itself with a creature, then I will try it. If not, then I'll just do a different shot. So is this still a lot of improves? Absolutely, absolutely. Because if these models don't show up on time, <laughs> they're dirty sometimes. <laughs> they and the talk. <laughs> Probably, exactly. Or there's no showing. No showing, yes. That is a common thing. <laughs> I, and I also noticed to say you're one of the few divers I know who've actually really promoting diving in hunches. <laughs> I have dived there and I do agree that the biodiversity diversity in the water, especially for critters, is incredible. Like the range of it. And what's even more incredible is because the dive site is right next to an oil refinery and totally unexpected for me. My first time visited there, I just say, <laughs> huh, we're here? <laughs> Have you seen the oil refinery at night? It's really beautiful. It's like one of the most romantic places. If you stand on a hotel island and look at the oil refineries and all the light. I'm not being there because I thought the diving in Hongqi, even very dive, is equivalent of night dive for me. For <laughs> so I'm never quite drawn to the idea of doing the night dive. I'm sure there are different creatures that at night yeah. for any photographers who's into macro. And this is at perfect places. And you're in uh, Singapore. So how often do you go there? And then... And what do you think? <laughs> I will tell you, I started diving in Hantu. I don't remember exactly. I think it was 2015. It was a very different situation there. It was a much smaller boat that we went out on. I was obsessed with this uh, Shonda sheep slug that I saw at the valley. And I was like, and if someone had posted it somewhere and he was a Singaporean, I was like, where did you find that? And he was a good photographer. And he's like, why don't you join me one day? We'll go out to Huntu. And I'd never been out to Huntu. And I couldn't find this critter. And even they showed me. I was like, where is it? Where is it? it was so tiny. And I couldn't spot anything when I first got there. But what, what I did start to learn and like about Huntu was when I upgraded my camera from was a compact camera to a mirrorless system, it was actually a great way for me to practice this and try things and experiment, do whatever. It didn't matter. I didn't feel like I was wasting my money going somewhere where you have, oh, you have to get the shots now because you're now in Bali or in Philippines or somewhere. There's all these cool critters and still figure out how to use the camera. So I use it as like a 
creative studio, so to mm-hmm. speak. And then I had my other kind of dive photographer friends that we would go very frequently. And then we see get ideas about some creative ideas. And every week we want to try new things. Let's try this. Let's try to shoot this type of creature this way. And it, it was actually a good way to learn. And so in my early days, I would go onto very frequently, at least almost like once a week. I think one year when did 100 dives in Hantu. Yeah. So in the early days, yeah, I was going very frequently. And then I started to slope down around before COVID. I wasn't going quite as much. After a while, I've seen everything I wanted to see it on too. I've tried everything I wanted to try. I wanted to do something different. That's where I was looking at, well, I should probably do more kind of big, epic animal trips, which I've always liked. Honestly, when I started diving, that's what I would, that's what I lived before the big animals. And it wasn't till I discovered there's this world of macro in Asia mm-hmm. that I got into macro. I didn't even know what skeleton strippers or pygmy sea were before. But so that kept me busy yeah. for a long time. I do enjoy the big stuff, so to speak. I find wide angle to be a whole nother kind of genre and also in some ways, I think more challenging than macro. Yeah. Yeah. Compositions I think are harder. You can't always use strobe, so you have to rely on whatever lighting you have. Sometimes you don't have good lighting. Sometimes you have backlighting. So there's a more, I think, variability, I say, as opposed to macro. Macro, it's more controlled and constant. Mm-hmm. You always have a strobe. You could shoot with a torchlight too, but it's pretty much kind of the same. If we look at the biggest stuff, you also have done some really amazing photos. And I really like the one with the shark in the middle as if the shark was sort of came to your face. That's one of the styles. Like face-ons. Yeah, face-on style is one of, I guess... My preferred styles too, with uh, with the nudie brands or any, any kind of macro critters. I always like to get the head on, face on. Like yeah. it's very symmetrical, and so with yeah, the sharks too. I like to do that too if I can. But that one is challenging to be able to get that because nudie branch doesn't move much. Of course, sharks are much harder, and not all sharks look good face on. Tiger sharks don't look good face on. They just look like a big head. They don't look good. <laughs> but hammerhead will look nice and also reef sharks can also look nice too yeah at a certain angle but tiger sharks now i don't think they look good so what was that like i remember that shot it was in the bahamas and you're just in one place and you just let the shark come to you and it was like an airplane flying over you <laughs> so you just position yourself with the airplane to do the overhead flyover and you can anticipate though sometimes you can anticipate their movements that so you position yourself that like for example if the shark is coming your direction and you want to get that face on shot you might be able to move or maneuver yourself into position where it will swim directly right at you not always is the case it would be fair to say now you need to know the dive site quite well to get to know what are the likely activities i think you need to know the animal behavior more yeah you need to understand that you know what's going to scare them away obviously if you chase them try to get near them they're going to swim away you can never chase a shark you can never chase a whale but if you hold really still and hold your bubbles, then they will come closer. So what was that my swimming with shark for you? Uh, some of the sharks, I see there's people have that negative perception, that horrible perception from Jaws, but then mad. I really tried to dispel that whenever I hear people, are you scared of swimming with sharks? They're to be respected, but they're more scared of you. They really are. For example, like the tiger sharks, I always tell people, they're just like puppy dogs. Like. Some of them are like they're mischievous animals. They try to get sneaky. When you're not lucky, they try to sneak up on you to get a better look. They're not trying to chomp on you. I think they're just curious, right? Yeah. So they want to get, when you're not looking, they'll just try to go behind you. You mm-hmm. look, and then the moment you like look them in the eye and then you, okay, 
you had to redirect him. So you push him away. So you're too close to me. Push you away. Social <laughs> distance. Yeah. yeah. He just like redirect. Okay. Please go somewhere else. You're too close to my space. Yeah. I think it's quite important. The conversation people need to have is about sharks, the perceptions of it. And yeah, some Hollywood movies have pre programmed people in their mindset and nervous system. We're not afraid of sharks in general. No. Actually, we would go and look for sharks. We yeah, exactly. We want, the we want the bigger, the better. Yeah. And then we would do whatever we can to see sharks. I personally really love having sharks that swim past me or to have a shark in front of me. I think it's the most zen moment to watch them. When the shark is not distressed, they swim in the most elegant manner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they really are. So you actually use hand to as your creative studio and then to practice creating macro photography. So for people who live in Singapore and wants to practice on the world of photography, and Pantu, I definitely agree, macro is the best kept secret. Yeah. What would be a practical top tip that you would share with people doing Pantu and for macro photography? I always tell people, okay, you have to set expectations. Pantu <laughs> is not like going to Tioman. The water's not going to be clear. So people do freak out when they can't see their kids or they mean it's visibilities, which is average. And so I guess setting people's expectations, because I think if you go and you expect clear water, you're just going to take the place. But if you go with an open mind, knowing that visibility isn't great, but for macro photography, you're going to be right on the critter. So it doesn't matter with the visibility. You can take great photos. It's always probably good to go with somebody who's been to Hantu before, can show you some of the critters and because you won't be familiar with the reef or what's in season. And it's great because it's shallow. Western Reef, I think, bottoms out at like 13 meters, 14 meters. The North Jetty, about 25. So it's shallow diving. Most of the time you're at like around 10 meters anyway. And buoyancy control is important because you'll kick up all the silt and you'll have a cloud of hand all around you then you might get freaked out like where am i where am i i don't know other photographers be like oh, here's a newbie create a big sandstorm <laughs> i can't see anything i can't even find my torch because like it kicked everything up there's more and more photographers are going to hunt you especially i mean during covid but i think people do see the value of the macro life there and the easy diving and you can just do it in an afternoon you don't have to travel anywhere. You don't have to worry about flying. You just have to wash your equipment. That's it. Yeah, I think that photography is your passion that you do a lot and outside your day job. So your day gig, the corporate job, if I remember correctly, you're saying digital marketing. Yes. So it's just another form of communication. Do you see yourself reflected in both when you're doing the photography and your digital marketing? Because a lot of these show communication through the work, the final product. For sure, for visual presentation of information, the site would be a website or a digital banner. Communication is still important, right? You're still communicating something. So in this case, I'm communicating our products, our companies and products and services. And whereas my underwater photography is communicating something else, talking about stories in the ocean, ocean conservation, whatever it may be. So we're both telling stories, different channels, different subjects, but there's still also creativity involved too and how that information, how do you lay out that information? What kind of imagery do you use to communicate, to support your topic with? So even though it's a corporate job, there is definitely synergies between the two.
So do you find that by doing photography that makes you even better at the bringing in the into the digital or vice versa? I wouldn't say it makes it better. I think they're complementary. I'm just good visually with things. So generally, whenever there's creative that needs to be reviewed, that it always will pass through me. And I maybe have that eye for creativity or how something should be laid out just through kind of experience and a lot of training, maybe through the photography. It's not something that I learn through course or anything, just learn through experience. That's very important because I don't think this kind of skills is something that you can learn by attending the course. Yeah, it, it's really is a life experience. It is life experience. And I, I'm a very visual person. So I did inspiration by just looking at other people's images. And I look at the image and what draws me to that image? What do I like about it? It can be any kind of image. And so be, when I started to learn underwater photography, that's what I did. I just went on to different websites and groups online and just start to study people's pictures. What kind of pictures do people take? They take them. The funniest story was, Early on, when I, very first time I, I even took my first trip with a compact camera, I went to Lembe, and I had no idea really much about Nuni Brinks, but I was very proud of my photos I took, and I was showing my friends on the dive trip who also have compact camera shooters. And I was like, "Look at this Nuni Brink. It's a common, really common Nuni Brinks. It is very colorful." And I just did a top view of it, and I said, "Look at it! Look how perfect!" I thought it was perfect because it's like. I just, it was just a regular shot. And then my diver friend, she said, she says, it's nice. Maybe next time you'll want to take a photo of its face. <laughs> and I'm like, where's the face? <laughs> so it was all these things I was like, you didn't learn over time. <laughs> Normally when the dive master pointed out, it's top down. So you only ever see them at that vantage point. But I think as you start to think more about the composition of the photo, the lighting, the creative aspect, how do you interpret, how do you present that? How do you frame your photo? It is a, a fun experience. I'd like to ask you some questions that I answer all my guests. First, what are your top three tips on safe diving practice that maybe you could share one or two that's more relevant for photographers. I think the first thing is know how to dive before you even pick up a camera. I think sometimes people get very excited with the new shiny equipment, whether they photographers will land and then try to scuba dive for the first time and then they want to get those amazing photos that they see everyone else taking, but they don't know how to dive. <laughs> and they're kicking up the sandstorm and they can just really get a zero. I say that is probably the most, that is one thing I do tell everyone is before you go on that big trip to Komodo or Galapagos Islands or somewhere where there's like strong current, holding a camera, learn how to dive and use your kind of your equipment works and everything. That's number one. Number two is know your limit. Don't think you are more advanced or that you can push yourself to do more than you're trained to do. I think there are some people who you're on life support equipment. <laughs> Don't forget at the end of the day. And some people will just do dumb things because they think they can do it. They're invincible or whatever, but then they're making really life-threatening decisions. And then I guess the third thing would be always listen to the guy briefings. <laughs> <laughs> It's very important. 
You think about it, but even in a place like Hantu, you can, has happened, follow the current, follow the reef in the wrong direction, and end up on the other side where the oil refinery is and have to be rescued. One person actually did go all the way out there. <laughs> so the next question, outside scuba diving, what do you do to maintain your own well-being? I always believe in, especially as you get older, I believe in healthy lifestyle. It's, it's, it's. Part of lifestyle, it starts with making sure you eat the right foods, you exercise, and you get enough sleep and manage stress. I think those are all super important to a healthy lifestyle. That's usually what I do when I'm not diving is I'll go to the gym, I'll run, and I do a lot of walking because I'm a wildlife photographer too. So I have a lot in the jungles and I'm doing walking there too. I try to stay really active, make sure that my body is healthy, eat good food. <laughs> you mentioned about the healthy eating. It's part of the aging thing that our metabolism rate slows down, hormone changes. What have you done to help yourself to maintain that well-being? Oh, yes, for sure. The metabolism has slowed down. I eat less. Portion-wise, I eat less. Low-carb, high-protein diet seems to work very well for me. Eliminate any kind of sugar, which is carbs, basically. Of course, I do eat some carbs and stuff. So I find that those tend to work really well. And obviously alcohol, I don't really drink, so it's not a problem for me. The only exception to that is when I go on a dive liveaboard, I could eat whatever I want. <laughs> but all week, because I'll lose five pounds at the end of the week, because I'm always freezing cold underwater. <laughs> I end up somehow where I can sleep, lose five pounds <laughs> on a liveaboard. Yeah, so one tip for anybody who's not yet dying <laughs> You want to maintain health and maintain your weight or weight control. Scuba diving is the best sport that you can do. But you don't realize, if you even go to Hantu, you don't realize, even though you don't move much when you're underwater photography, the fact that the water is colder than your body temperature, it takes a lot of calories to heat up your body. I forget exactly, like 600 calories to, to raise your body temperature, like one degree or something like that, or maintain one degree. It's a lot of calories. I don't know if that's true for other people, but... That's what I've noticed. I'm always lose weight. Yeah. Actually, I happen to know most people, I have to say. And the other thing with diving is also good for your sleep. Do you find yourself sleep better? Oh, yes. When I was doing deep diving in Banda Sea, <laughs> after every dive, I was like, okay, not time. I'm just taking 10, 15 minutes. Nah. Mm. And, and I don't normally nap during mm. the day. But for whatever reason, when I do a deep dive, I get so tired. <laughs> And do you find that the quality of sleep is better? I think so. Yeah, I have no problem sleeping on a liveaboard. Yeah. I don't have jet lag either. I think the science of sleeping is similar to yoga. Like at the end of the yoga class, you do shavasana. That's where you just like, hold your body. That's the most important pose of the entire yoga class, which is my favorite. It makes sense. Yeah. Okay, the next question. What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Gosh, that was a tough one. Well, I think it's follow your passion, follow your passion and let your passion take you wherever it goes. So I think sometimes we make decisions not based on our passions, decisions based on to please other people, what they would want you to do as opposed to what you are passionate about doing. Yeah, I think it's a quite a common trait amongst women, people pleasing. I think particularly also when you're younger, yeah. you want approval. From what may be like parents, oh, I do, don't do that, then they think less of you or whatever. Obviously, you have like evolved from that and everybody has experienced it one way or another. Yeah. But as you evolve and looking back, 
what was the trigger point or what was the turning point for you to say, okay, I'm not doing this. I'm my own person now. I think one of the best experiences I would have missed out. I'm, I'm not saying there was something I did that I really regret or anything, but what I kind of learned was I made decisions based on my passion. So there was a time when I was unemployed. I was unemployed from the airlines and I was unemployed for nine months. And my family kept hounding me and hounding me to go for a job. And the market, and to be honest, it was not a good market either. Finding a job would not have been easy. I'd probably have to relocate from where I was living at the time. But because I, I got laid off from an airline, I had not only a severance pay, but I had some amazing <laughs> benefits, <laughs> which were flight benefits. So I decided to take advantage of these flight benefits that I would never ever have again. So the first few months, it was fine to travel, spend money, go places. But then the family was constantly saying, okay, you stop traveling, get a job. And I just made that decision to follow my passion, follow this. And said, if I listen to them, this opportunity I will never have again. And that's what I did. I took advantage of my, I was able to travel the world in nine months. <laughs> which was an incredible experience, a really incredible kind of one of those life-changing experiences. What did you visit during that time? I think I traveled 500,000 miles that year or those nine months. I went to South America. I did Southeast Asia. I went to India, Europe, went a lot of places, a lot of England, Caribbean. Some of us diving too. I did some dive trips, but it was a very surreal time in my life because I can literally just jump on an airplane and go anywhere. This was probably a long time ago. Again, kind of being young and my parents were so worried about me. They were pressured on me too. I had rent to pay and I didn't have a job anymore. There was no one else paying the rent other than me. If you were to go back and then spend a bit more time and then get to know the place in more in depth, where would that be? I think I would want to go back to Easter Island. That was a very fascinating place. Okay. I did extend my stay there, but I only spent a total, I think, a week. And I found the history of the island really interesting. And then you can actually scuba dive there, which I opted not to because I'm thinking, oh, there's nothing to see there. But this way before I had a camera or anything, it was just diving. And yeah, I'm just fascinated by all those moist stone statues that they have on the island, the history and then the theories and how they got there and how they carved them. It's just like amazing, like the human civilization back then. Yeah. And I think there are still lots of places like that. Still, yeah. To this day, everybody still tried to get around their head to figure out how it was built in the first place and how the material got to where they were because they were not organic yeah. Yeah. in the immediate environment. Okay. Why don't you do make that trip back? <laughs> and next question, what is one life-changing experience that you can think of now? The most obvious one is actually living in Singapore. I'm from the U.S., born and raised there, and I've been here 15 years. So now it's not a recent move, but I would say that's been the most life-changing experience. And in some ways, I feel like I should have left the U.S. much sooner. I got very complacent living there in the role I was in at the time. But I learned so much living in a different country. And when I go back to the U.S. and I see people that never left the town, it's almost like they stood still and stopped in time. Whereas I feel like I have so many experiences and I feel like I'm a different person altogether than when I used to live there. But do you find that when you go back and you catch up with the folks. Conversation is a bit difficult. It depends on the 
groups of friends, I don't think they're difficult. It's just that I think they're usually at all, like they're envious of my lifestyle or whatever. I'm traveling and been all these places and they've never left who they are. It's not difficult. It's just they can't relate. They can't relate to all those experiences in time. I think life's experiences has to be and each individual, you have to go through it to be able to understand and if you have similar experience, they can relate to each other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why diving is a common thing for scuba divers. And it's also one of the best icebreakers when you discover someone else who's a scuba diver, especially in the awkward social events that you have to go and network and then you found somebody who actually yeah, it's the scuba dives and then they, they hit it off right away and that you don't care about why you're there for networking in the first place and just talk about diving <laughs> and then you actually could become friend or even in doing business together yeah, the result of it that's happened before yes uh, yeah. do you have a story that you could share that experience well, I upgraded my camera. I was selling some equipment by carousel and then one of the guys he bought something from me camera lady and then I said, oh, are you a photographer? He says, yeah. He says, I'm an okay photographer. And they said, are you? And I just, yeah. And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, do you have a website or whatever? So I was just showing his picture. He's like, wow, you feel really good, blah, blah. And he's like, and I said, where do you dive? And I said, oh, I dive in Huntu. I took a holiday in Huntu. And he's like, oh, really? You can go dive in Huntu. So we got this little conversation. Then one weekend, he showed up there with another friend of his. So he introduced me. And I said, hi. And then his friend happened to give me a ride home. And I met the two guys, like, I think a couple times. So I was talking to his friend a few times about what he did. He worked also in a similar industry as me. And uh, yeah, and then one day, his friend said, oh, I see this job posting. And he wrote to me and he says, is that position still available? And I said, yeah. And I thought, but I didn't know anything about his background. Is he qualified? And like, I just know from diving. I don't know anything about him. I said, okay, yeah, it's still open. Why are you sending your uh, CV? We'll take a look at it. And then meet an interview as you qualify. I'll open things for an interview. So I brought him in for an interview and hired him. He's been with me for, I think, six years now, seven years. Great employee. Been promoted. He's a dive instructor. Even like trying to get other people on our team and certified. <laughs> but it's just so funny how found him was on a dive boat. <laughs> so you could probably have team building through diving. Yeah, we, so we've talked about that. We talked about that. Yeah, well, we did team building. We did go on a boat. We did go on a boat. One of the dive boats. Yeah, on for team building. Obviously, it wasn't for dieting, but we just had a barbecue and karaoke on the dive boat. Yeah, it was fun. When you're able to do something like that, so it's like team bonding. Yeah. And yeah. then it does help to create the better environment and induce higher performance results. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, the next question. What are you most passionate about right now? Right now, I'm still really focused on my photography. So now, because of COVID, I filled up all my free time from not being able to travel to learning new genres in photography, like wildlife photography. So I've been going out into those forests and I've become a very good animal spotter. I never realized this, but I think it has to do with my training at Hantu. And since I was a little kid, I'm really good at spotting animals. So a lot on my free weekends and doing some even man macro photography and the other kind of genre of photography. I like to do like Milky Way mm-hmm. or Astro photography. Can you do that in Singapore? No, you have to go somewhere. And you have to... <laughs> this is... Yeah. yeah. So that's been exciting and they do it. It's like another project too. I'm learning it and then getting other ideas and going to group people and giving new ideas. But I think I'll help with the creativity process too. Yeah, it's nice. Milky Way. So where would you go for your Milky Way? I did a trip back in, I think it was August, a weekend trip to 
there was a photographer here. He organized a trip to Bintan. And we went to the 500 Lohan Temple, which is a kind of beautiful, relatively new Buddhist temple. And we did the Milky Way. Yeah. Over there, and you could actually see the yeah. Milky Way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe surprised. Yeah. But not, not, not this time of year, just too wet and too rainy. Of course, it's all weather dependent, right? Of course, some people go to Bromo. That's the classic, mm-hmm. doing the night photography there. But they need to travel. The thing about don't like about everything's hard about night photography is that you don't get any sleep. <laughs> you don't get any sleep, but the instructor will say, You don't come here to sleep. <laughs> so it's day. Okay. It ends up being a late night thing. And I also even did this when I would Bali recently. So after my diving, we would go out and do night photography. We'd drive around and look for suitable spots in like a volcano and then do a Milky Way shot with a volcano or with a temple. The reason why you need to stay up late is depending on when the Milky Way will be up in the sky, at what time, and how high will it be. So you're going to be a position for, with your subject. It can, different times of year, it's at different different heights. Because you obviously can't really shoot if it's strained by your head. Yeah. So that's why you don't know when the ideal time is. It can be three in the morning. When we went to Bintan, it wasn't so late, but the problem was it was cloudy. So you had to wait. To see if there's breaks in the clouds. You wait and pray. Obviously. Yes. Yes. You wait and pray. And just sit there and you wait and pray. And you test when you wait. <laughs> yeah. But, um, that's why it becomes a late night thing. And if you want to do a star trail, that takes a long time. For whatever you love and passionate about. <laughs> All of this is secondary. For people who only see the product and then admiring it, they should also understand and appreciate the effort that's gone behind the work to produce that. Lovely picture. Yeah. You can shoot a photo, but then at the composition, what are you going to put in it? There's all sorts of things things you can do with the light painting and models. Again, it's composition. Yeah, creativity. Yeah. How am I going to shoot this differently? What am I going to do differently? What do I want to look like? Shooting Milky Way is easy. Just by itself. It's boring. Yeah. You need subjects to tell a story. You have been listening to Surface Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Catherine Liu, a talented photographer and senior corporate executive. When listening to the length that she would go to to fine-tune her photography skills and her work, I could feel the joy of being immersed in what she feels passionate for. It reminds me of this quote, Doing what you want is freedom. Loving what you do is happiness. So what fuels your curiosity and what drives your passion. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and Music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe and even better, share with your friends and family so that they get to be inspired. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith at servicetimechats.com.